Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Angler's Happy Hour podcast. In today's show, we talk with Texas tournament angler and YouTube host, Ken Smith. We talk about ring gear, catching bass out of schools of striper and hybrids, and we put a bow tie on the bass telemetry study. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Angler's Happy Hour podcast. I think we've got a great episode on tap. We've got a great guest, a great interview, but before we swing it over to him, uh, let's go around the table and see what's going on with the guys. Rob, uh, what are you doing this morning, man? I'm trying to wake up, uh, getting ready to do some more painting and remodeling. That's pretty much my life right now, so that's about all I got. Uh, Looking forward to... Obviously, I say this every episode, completing this and getting back to hunting and fishing. So that's yeah, about all that's I got good. going. It's easier yeah. to get up and go fishing than it is to get up and start painting. Get to work. Yeah, but I'm highly motivated. I want to get this stuff done. You know, it's just, it's, uh, and but I know there's, I'm seeing no light at the end of the tunnel yet. And it's not even close. So a long tunnel. For what it's that, like when you have a 10,000 square foot house, dude. Whatever, right. dude. No, not even close. <laughs> you guys have walkie talkies, right? Like someone goes in the kitchen and then they like bleep into the other one. Like, you want a drink? That's how Stop. it is, right, Rob? No. My house is smaller than both of your guys' houses. <laughs> It'd be sweet, dude. Imagine if you had like those bank tube things, like pneumatically set up throughout your house. So you could just like write a little note and push a button, <laughs> shoot it in there. Oh, you don't um, have those? Not yet. Well, I'm yeah. Bluetooth. You're kind of old school, so I could gotcha. see you doing the pneumatic tooth. I got Bluetooth, so Perfect. I, I think it. I've got a wearable on my head. Hilarious. <laughs> Rob, speaking of heads, dude, look at your beautifully sheared skull, man. It got a nice little haircut over there. You're like, you kind oh, of yeah. look like Anderson Cooper, actually, in a good That's way. That's hilarious right there, dude. Do we have any black That is hilarious. <laughs> Freaking Nick. Are you going to tell your wife that Nick said that? That's so funny. That you I don't know. Anderson Cooper. What's that? Are you going to tell your wife that Nick said you look like Anderson Cooper? She'll laugh so hard at you, dude. Oh, yeah. I, well, I, yeah, it is, it is what it is. It's a compliment. My wife, I mean, obviously, that's not maybe our flavor of politics, but who wants to talk about politics on this? But, like, back in the day, my wife was like, oh, he's, like, the most handsome man in news, and then came to find out that I think he's on the other team, and he's actually kind of an <laughs> asshole in real life. So she's <laughs> chilled out on that, but for a, lot, but for a while, she would say that, and I'd be like, well, I got nothing. I have no hair to turn white, so... At least uh, I'm, I'm out there, but blue looks good, man. I like it. Thanks. Right on. Yeah, let's turn the page here before I start having to do, do too much editing. Uh, Nick, what's going on with you, man? I edit out all the good stuff. Not a whole lot, man. Um, just basking in the great friendship of you guys always letting me record podcasts super early. It's a good thing we're fishermen, right? Yeah. Hey, it's our, our quality has probably suffered lately because we're getting up so early to do these things, but it is nice be, to be done with this and kind of have the whole day in front of you. You know, it's uh, it's tough to get guests when you record and when it's still dark out, but yeah, we're fishermen and, and we're used to it anyways. Yeah, man. So just a uh, garden variety week out here. I'm a little excited though. I think I'm, I'm hatching a game plan to uh, go to, falcon in december so i have a light at the end of the tunnel and i'm pretty sure it's not a train so pretty excited about that that's awesome man you know i guess uh we'll talk about it a lot more when you actually make it down there but i'm stoked for you i know that nick was looking at fishing down in mexico at first because you know when you go on it on a fishing trip this time of year you don't have a lot of choices it's it's got to be somewhere down south if you're going to be after bass and um yeah i think uh 
What was the challenge, dude? Del Salto was actually uh, a I, Yeah, according to the all-knowing Google, they're suffering some COVID closures right now. And uh, I could probably call them to confirm that. It kind of looked like the boilerplate COVID disclosure, but because uh, their website didn't say anything. But then again, their website also maybe looks like it was made in 1997. So I don't know which information is less reliable, but Falcon seems like a good fit and uh, won't have to dust off my passport. So be fun, man. I, I scored some brownie points holding down the fort with all the kids. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to use them. So. Good call. Strike while the iron is hot, man. I like <laughs> That's right. it. Although yeah. I don't want to count brownie points because I know I have a pretty large deficit probably. But hey, any healthy marriage does, right? <laughs> they're double points when they're you, man. That's right. You got extra credit. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I'm stoked to hear about it, man. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll. I guess we'll dive deeper into that one when it gets really close. But I'm, yeah. uh, I'm What's up with you, Josh? What you got going on? Uh, kind of the same old here, man. Um, since I've been back from Florida, just kind of reorganized, get, getting reorganized in my life. Uh, I did. I fished a couple times this week. I actually took a junior Bassmaster fishing. Um, uh, great kid named Robbie. I took him out last year, and um, I told you guys that that video from him fishing last year when he caught that six and a half at Saguaro. It went kind of semi-viral in the in the fishing world because. It was just such a cool fish catching video. He had this fish on and it swam him into like five trees, came out of the trees. Like I thought we were going to lose it like five times and, and it, it came out every time. Um, he lands it and then goes, just proceeded to go absolutely nuts when we got in the boat. <laughs> the reaction was so great. Uh, his passion was so awesome that the video was everywhere. And um, he won Sportsman of the Year again in the club and we went out again uh, to Roosevelt and we had a, had a, another great day of fish. And I think we caught about, we caught about 30 fish, um, nothing huge up to two and a half pounds, but just a good day of, uh, fall fishing, early winter fishing. But here's kind of the weird thing. Like this is the time of year where you're really expecting the fish to group up and, you know, get on schools. And that's what we've been looking for for the last few weeks. But it was one of those crazy days where the fish really just kind of came like, I, I don't want to say sporadically because when you catch 30, it's not sporadic, but they, we never sat there and caught like 15, 10 or 15 in a row. It was just like, you'd catch one and then catch another one 10 minutes later, then catch another one 15 minutes later, then catch one five minutes later and then go an hour without catching one. But it wasn't like fish, 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 and then two hours dead. It was, it was just a, a fairly steady day of fishing. So, I mean, I, that's good, and I'm not complaining, but um, this abnormally fall winter that we've had here in Arizona has got the fish in all depths. Like, um, I've caught him as deep as, like, 50 feet. You know, talked to Matt Shura, who was out there uh, the last couple of days, and he's caught him as deep as 50. And uh, we caught we caught fish flipping also. So it just goes to show <laughs> all depths. You know, at the end of the day, when you're walking up the boat ramp in that clear water, you see fish sitting in shallow water so it's like they are in every depth and uh we talked about it before like it makes it to where you can it's hard to go out and have a terrible day like you're almost guaranteed to catch some fish when it's like that because no matter what you do you're around fish but it just makes it hard to have a a, a crazy banner day yeah you think ultimately we get enough cold i mean obviously enough cold weather stacked up long enough that's got to push them into that final winter pattern 
I mean, yeah. they can't be spread out the whole time. I agree. Yeah. I'm, you know, and they'll probably, I mean, what do you guys think? My guess is we'll probably see them vacate that mid depth zone. You'll see less fish probably in that, I don't know, 15 to 25. And you'll see, you'll see that some fish stay shallow, but a lot of them are going to push to that 25 to 50. You agree, Rob? Yeah. My take in the fall is they're in extremes. Usually when you have a normal fall, normal temperatures, it's, you know, cooler temperatures are, you know, extremely shallow or extremely deep you know so one way or the other not a lot of the in-between stuff but hey josh talk about robbie a little bit how old is he you know i think he's 12 and uh you know i apologize robbie because i know he's probably listening i'm sorry if i've got your age wrong man he he acts and fishes like he's a lot older than that but um i know he's still pretty young um but just a great kid just a great family and uh, the phoenix junior bass masters like junior fishing and high school fishing and college fishing everyone knows we've talked about it a ton how much it's blowing up but his his parents are heavily involved in the club locally here and they are getting uh at their last tournament they had like 65 kids which is outstanding to make that work is phenomenal right like to to be able to put that on and give 65 kids an opportunity to go out and fish a tournament out of a bass boat is uh it's incredible and last year they were already great go ahead go ahead 30 plus volunteers bringing boats for these guys for that's the most part. I'm sure there's some too. dads and stuff, yep. but that's, uh, that's a big deal, man. That's cool. That is. Yeah. I know that uh, Nick's actually volunteered as a boater, um, you know, before he had his weekends were filled with craziness from his own kids. And that's my situation also, you know, yeah. I think, you know, it might maybe, you know, maybe here in, uh, five years my daughter will be wanting to do this and seven years my son will be wanting to do this and i'll be i'll be a fishing dad you know we'll we'll see about that i I sure hope that's the case but it is cool that's a lot of volunteers and um it's just it's an awesome gig like the kids i asked you know what do they what do they fish for and they have prizes and um you know all kinds all kinds of cool stuff and, and the kids just learn so much but um they got an awesome you know diverse group of kids i think they've got four girls in the club and uh one of the girls actually had one of the big had had the big fish at their last event at Bartlett, like a four plus pounder. So nice. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. They send kids to uh, tournaments around the country. You know, the kids that uh, you know qualify through the club. They just had two kids, I think, fish in uh, either Tennessee or Kentucky at the World Finals a couple weeks ago. So this is a a, a TBF FLW federated uh, club. Mm-hmm. But um. Yeah, anyways, it's Robbie's awesome, man. Um, absolute stud fisherman. I, I told uh, – actually, I can't remember. I think I told Rob, like, when the day started, I was like, well, you know, we're going to test Ro- Robbie out right off the bat with uh, throwing a jerkbait on a baitcaster. Because, you know, everyone knows a jerkbait is one of the tougher baits to, to cast on a baitcaster. And his first cast, he just whips it out there like it's nothing, you know, <laughs> two feet off the bank perfectly. I was like, all right, buddy, you can use any of my stuff that you want. You definitely uh, – are going to be just fine with it. And he caught him doing everything. He caught him um, on a jerk bait. He caught him flipping. He caught him drop shotting. And, uh, you know, one weird other weird thing from the day was like in the wintertime, you're so I'm always itchy to throw a jig, right? Like it's and, and you guys, too. Like, I know you guys love throwing a football jig and the winter's like the best time to do it. But it was amazing. <clears throat> we we just got off of we're in the middle of a big warm spell right now, but it's amazing how much the fish did not want a football jig. 
Huh. It's That's uh, crazy. On all the same stuff, you throw a, a drop shot and just fish, 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 fish. And you throw a jig in the same areas and just not get touched. It'd be like 10 to 1. Uh, and I expect <laughs> that to flip really soon. But uh, just for kicks, I'd do that all the time. You know, I'd pick up that football jig and throw it in areas where we were catching them and you wouldn't get bit. And you'd pick up a drop shot in your second cast, you'd, you'd catch one. So I thought it's, that was interesting. It's got to be a forage thing, huh? It's got to it, be what they're eating. 1000% they're on shad still. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, You're totally right on that. Huh? Yeah. That's cool about Robbie, dude. That's awesome. I, I, I'm glad you said everything about him. Cause that's what I wanted you to say was what you told me on the phone that you literally, it was like just fishing with a, a very accomplished angler and, and not too many 12 year olds hop in a boat and, and hang with a MLF pro. So pretty cool. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, when we went flipping, you know, that can be a dreadful thing with guide clients. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I don't flip with clients. <laughs> just don't do it. Yeah. You know, no. just, just being back in the jungle in general in all that brush is tough. And like, I knew it was going to be no issue with them because, and, and we went back there and it was literally just covering water like normal, just like I was fishing with you guys. So that, that's a breath of fresh air sometimes because, uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, that's what you're right. You don't do that with a lot of certain people, yeah. for sure. Props, props to Robbie's parents for giving him the opportunity. It's pretty cool. So. Yeah, they fish every weekend, like twice a week at least, man. So it's pretty. Cool. I mean, it's pre- pretty special. Josh, yeah. I saw on your uh, social media you put a picture of like a pretty sweet looking channel edge with trees on it from your live scope. Was that from that day? It was, yeah, man. So uh, Did you catch anything out of that? Yeah, you know. That is one of the cool things, and just a quick plug on that, just just because it's it's a cool it's a, it's a cool feature, man, with live scope, and you know it's it, people always talk about how it's awesome to see fish and stuff, but like how often have you guys been like fishing a spot and your boat sitting at a certain depth, but you're casting into an area and you just don't want to take your boat up there because you don't want to spook the fish, or the the cover is so thick that you don't want to or you can't physically can't get your boat over it to graph it. So you're just trying to figure out, make a cast and figure, okay, my, I think my bait sank like 10 feet or I think it, it fell like two feet, but now with live scope, you literally just pan it over there and it's like, okay, yeah, we're casting into four and a half feet or we're casting into 30 feet. Uh, it's an amazing feature for that, man. So like, how about like bodies of water? Like the, the one I can think of as a red river in Louisiana, I mean, you're not catching them in those big flat bays in the back unless you have a little bit of bottom contour. And to be able to yep. find it with that, I mean, that's that's pretty key. So Totally, yeah. It can keep you in that ditch, right? Like, yep. you know, yeah, you're fishing. A, you, it all looks the same on the surface because it's just stumps everywhere. But the ditch, you know, fishing a bend in the ditch or just fishing a, a stretch of a ditch is key. And that definitely allows you to stay in it, man, 100%. So it's, just, it's not just for finding fish. And, and like, I catch myself sometimes – I forget I've got it. Like I actually made the comment. I was like, Hey, I wonder how deep it is up in that trees. How long do you think your baits are? And I was like, Oh, duh, dude, you got a go, bro. So I just turned the trolling <laughs> motor in that direction. And it was like, Oh, it's eight feet. So, uh, cool. yeah, yeah. Good call on it. Good, good. Uh, thanks for reminding me on that. But another, just a, a cool use for it. Just another scenario where it helps you catch more. Um, all right, before the interview, let's, t- let's, We've got a couple good questions uh, sent in from the listeners here. I'm pulling them up. The first one would be uh, it's from Patrick. And, uh, again, appreciate the, the uh, question, guys. Please keep sending them in because these are awesome and they give us good stuff to talk about. Question for the podcast, Josh. Looking to drop some money on rain gear. 
What's everyone's opinion on the best? And does rain the rain gear actually keep you dry from a frog strangler of a rainstorm? Love the show. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for the question, dude. Uh, I've got a couple of comments on this. Do you guys uh, do you guys want to start? I know um, you know I, I've I've leaned on Rob a bunch on on outdoor gear just because of his hunting experience through the years and in, in, in crazy weather. Uh, you started out, dude. So. My rain gear is current rain gear right now is Sitka stuff. Uh, so it's a hunting type rain gear, but what it has in common with all the other good rain gear is it's Gore-Tex. And I just don't think you can beat Gore-Tex when it comes to rain gear. Um, my rain gear prior to that was Cabela's Guidewear. Uh, I know Bass Pro Shops makes a, um, you know, the hundred mile an hour. Or what is that? The what's yeah, the, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very popular. Yeah, but probably one of the most popular ones in bass fishing is the Sims rain gear. And again, Sim, it's just Gore-Tex. I think Gore-Tex is the biggest key. So, Right on. Yeah, yeah I, I, go ahead, Nick. I have the nicest set of 15 or 17-year-old 100-mile-an-hour gear. It might not be that old, but it's pretty darn old. And uh, it's gone through the wash about 1,000 times, and it's still just as good as ever. So I think you're right on the right track with that rob i think the cortex is where it's at and it's durable as hell this yeah. is one of those scenarios where you get what you pay for and, and that absolutely stuff is not cheap but it's yep. i mean you get what you pay for it at last and you know me i'm wearing afco rain gear and i've been wearing it for a couple of years i've worn them all i mean i've had sims i've had 100 mile an hour and they're all i mean they're all they've all been good i mean they've all got their differences right the 100 mile an hour is much heavier <laughs> mm-hmm. um the Sims is much lighter weight to where you have to layer a lot more underneath. And AFCO's got a set of both, too. They've got, like, a very heavy set, um, and they've got a lighter set as well. And, um, I, you know, personally, now that I've, I've, I've pretty much worn worn all of them, um, I like to wear the, the rain gear that's a little bit lighter weight and just layer underneath. Like, it's just... I love, uh, I think it's called the anhydrous from uh, AFCO, but it's just like an all black suit and uh, it's a, it's a thin shell. Um, it's completely waterproof, but uh, underneath I'll go with just some, some, some da- like a down jacket and, and wearing just the, some nice, uh, if you're trying to stay warm, some uh, Merino wool underneath some Merino wool under layers with just, whatever in between something comfortable in between like literally sometimes sweatpants or a sweatshirt and then a down jacket and then that light shell it's a perfect combo of you know you're not weighted down by this heavy rain gear and and a lot of times like i don't know if you guys have noticed this in the past but like the heavier your rain gear is it can really really uh mess with your back by the end of the day like yeah it fatigues you your arms your back everything yes that feeling between your shoulder blades when you've had your your um, bibs weighting your shoulders down all day and you're flipping and it's 10 a.m. and you already have a burning in between your shoulder blades in the winter, like, that's brutal. It's just yeah. annoying and it's not necessary. Like, if you have, you know, if you wear some of that, some of the lighter weight outer rank, Gore-Tex outer layers, I think it helps you a lot. So yeah. um, He but, also asked about... Um, if you get wet in it, if, if it, and I mean, talk about some of the tournaments where you've literally, I think you just came from one where it just rained until you drove away from the rain on your way home. 
And I mean, you get wet. I don't care if you spend $700 on rain gear, you still have a little bit of seepage up your arms and down your back and stuff. Do you agree with that or not? Yeah. You just have to, that's where you just have to really be careful, right? Like make sure, because like a lot of times when I've gotten wet in the past, it's my own negligence. Correct. Like something wasn't zipped up all the way. I got in a rush. And I didn't, I didn't tuck the uh, wrists and, and uh, pants. I didn't Velcro them up tight enough and it got in that way. So like, it, you know, and, and for me, if you, if I do that, I'm pretty well set, you know, don't, don't let it come into your neck, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, and then just be, be cautious when you're making a run because that's, that's when you get wet, right? Like you could stay dry all day and then you make a run and that starts coming in at 70 miles an hour through the side. That's when you really have to be careful with the, yeah. with the, yeah, the advantage, the advantage to rain gear in a bass boat is you're not exerting energy as far as you're not sweating usually. Um, true. Like when you're hunting, I mean, you really have to be careful with, um, you know, you're hiking, so you're sweating. So you got to really balance what you're doing, um, when you have the rain gear on. And that's where like the, the pit zips come in play where you can, you know, open them up underneath your armpits, the zippers there and and help them breathe and, you know, try to stay a little drier, but kind of crazy how the difference there, but definitely, definitely want to stay, uh, you don't want to sweat underneath your rain gear either. So mm. that's a, that's a great call, dude. That's a whole nother element. Yeah. That, I don't remember a scenario in a bass, but other than just being down in like Florida, which it doesn't matter if you get cold cause it's warm out anyways, but you know, it's, um, here's the other plus though, for get going with the lighter weight rain gear is like, it's year round, right? Like if you have um, a set of super heavy insulated rain gear, you just can't wear it in the summer, you know? So I, I, I mean, you could have too, but yeah. I'm all for being able to wear it year round. Yep, mm-hmm. I agree. Spend the money in that situation. Yeah, for sure. Very well worth the money, man. Yeah, definitely worth it. In the, in the last, and and a, and uh, last thing, do you guys wash your rain gear? You guys wash it in the uh, washer and dryer? I do. Yes, not very often, but every once in a while I do. Right on. I've heard it can actually be good for it. Yeah, it helps it heal or whatever i don't i don't know something like that dude yeah like literally like it actually helps it stay waterproof if if you uh will occasionally uh throw it in the wash and dry it Hmm. uh okay cool next question in the fall what is the best way to fish for largemouth when you're having a hard time keeping white bass and hybrids off your line is it a matter of just working your way through all the other species until you get a few bass or are there lure or location suggestions that can help. So I think we've all got a pretty good amount of experience with this fishing around stripers, right? Stripers and white bass. Um, we've had had them bother us out on the water a million times. Um, any any tips on on lure selection that the stuff that, that those other fish just won't eat? One thing I can think of is like if you're in a striper boil and there are largemouth present, the less you move your bait, like let's say you're throwing a popper, um, if you keep it moving, the stripers are going to eat it, right? If you have a slower retrieve and longer pauses, more likely a largemouth would eat it. I know that's really random, but it's, you know, I've seen where that's a thing, especially like on Lake Mead when you're. And do you get right in the middle of the striper boil? Probably not. You probably fish the fringes of it, the edges of it, should to focus on the largemouth more. So kind of play against their more aggressive nature to their detriment. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. a great call. 
here's the thing and you have to fish around them like you're talking about like you don't leave man you just you can't leave an area that's got fish and bait especially on a lake like mead that's so sterile i mean when you got bait man everything in the lake is there eating it so yeah i mean 100 percent, and it's the same way back east with the hybrids and stuff and like i've experienced it um literally all over the country and and you just you have to you have to work through them even though it can be like super frustrating clearly you know going to some type of soft plastic is gonna you know it's gonna take away the amount of it's gonna lower the amount of stripers and hybrids and stuff biting like if you're throwing something like a crankbait or a topwater you know something that's shad imitating am i getting really loud or is this just my headphones okay right on something that's shad imitating it's gonna be it's really going to draw in those, those fish that have stripes on them. But, um, uh, any type of soft plastic is going to lower the amount of that. Um, and, and man, it's timing is another really big thing. Like I've, I've seen it to where the stripers and hybrids seem to move in and out of areas a lot more, but the largemouth will a lot of times stay. So if you'll catch the stripers and hybrids and waves and white bass and waves. But if you can wait it out, a lot of times the dust will settle and the large mouth will still be there. Or the small mouth will still be there and you can catch them. There was an example a couple of years ago, I was fishing a team tournament with my buddy, Alex, who was on the podcast. You guys both know him. And there were, the stripers were so thick in the back of this pocket. You couldn't make a cast without catching one. And we caught 20 in a row. And we said, man, I mean, we're just wasting time, but you know, there's, there's fish here. Like, how can we leave? Well, we, we catch several more and we're like, golly, well, let's just go around the corner and uh, we go around the corner and start just catching squat, right? We're not catching anything. And it's like, what kind of idiots are we? Like, why would we leave that when there's that much bait in there? So we turn around and go back and the striper are gone. And we caught like four giant largemouth in there and won the tournament on those fish. So, um, it was, uh, it was a whole deal where the stripers were just beating them to it. But once they left the bass stayed because the, you know, there was enough bait still present and, um, they were comfortable, you know, they were, they were using that wood and stuff that was in that pocket. And, uh, I've seen it. Yeah. I, I saw it a couple, uh, a couple of years ago too, in a winter tournament at Cherokee. Like, um, I was catching, fish vertically on a spoon and a Demiki rig this is in tennessee and there were giant uh, hybrids in an area and one thing that was interesting was like it would be frustrating because the hybrids were so big and you were using light line and spinning rod it would take so long to catch them like you'd catch a hybrid and it would take like five minutes to get it in. <laughs> and you didn't want to break it off and retie everything right so you'd get it in and be like golly but then you'd but when you'd catch a smallmouth that was big and bad enough to run with those things, it was a way above average size fish. So that's something to keep in mind too. Like, you know, if a bass can hang with hybrids and stripers, it's a big, bad dude. It's a, it's a big fish usually like, is it, and have you seen that on, on Mead and Pleasant and, and these lakes also? Not as much here, but I mean, yeah, I, I guess maybe on Mead, I mean, those fish that are running, you know, out there with the stripers are generally better fish. I just don't think of any fish at mead, big and bad. But <laughs> they had it in the sense that they're still alive. Right. Good point. So they're tough. Yes. Yes. Dude, it's funny you make it sound like stripers, and they are like the ADD fish 
of the freshwater lake, right? Like they, they find the spot where there's bait and they could just like settle down and be good, but they're too busy and ADD. They swim away and go find somewhere else. Oh yeah. That's so funny. It's a good way to put it, dude. They're I'm fun to catch, man. But I'll, I, I, they have uh, frustrated, frustrated me a, a time or two. That's for dang sure, man. Hilarious. Well, Hey, that's a good question. Um, and I think we're about ready to send it over to Ken. You guys have anything else to add before we, uh, bring ken in no man i think i think we nailed it so thank you to everyone listening and uh, we'll catch you next week awesome right on uh so hey uh just to preface ken's going to talk a little bit about you know who he is and uh what he does when uh when we swing it over to him but um this is the we're going to kind of wrap up that telemetry study that bass tracking study that we've been talking about so much for the last couple episodes ken is the is actually the guy that put together the videos um that we're talking about he's a he's an accomplished tournament angler great guy and uh, i think you guys will enjoy what he's got to say so uh, enjoy all right ken smith uh welcome to the show man how, how are you today what do you what do you have going on today man well looking at a nice cool bright morning in dp texas down here at sam rayburn it's beautiful so you actually live right at rayburn did i see you live in zavala well, actually, so uh, we live in Richardson, which is a suburb of Dallas, and uh, we had the world headquarters for Ken Smith Fishing is a little house here in Zavala, and my wife says you're not a redneck unless your boat barn is bigger than your house, and we have accomplished that down here. <laughs> that That's sounds awesome. cool. Heck yeah. Um, so how long have you had that place, man, over there? It'll be four years in January. So we were commuting back and forth, and this was about the time I met my wife. And at some point, she said, "Yeah, you really want to be with me. You get, you can't keep leaving me at home and disappearing for three or four days at a time." So we looked and found a great little place here in town, and be with it ever since. And you've got a couple little ones too, right? I've got a a fifteen month old Hollis. And we've got a uh, second baby on the way, another little boy in February, who I think we should name Hollis 2.0, but that's been kiboshed inside the Smith household. <laughs> well, congr- hey, what's up with your Instagram being Ken Smith 2.0? Did your first one uh, get hacked it, or something? It, it did get hacked uh, at 3 in the morning. And if you know anything about Instagram, they were not helpful in me recovering that. Actually, they banned me for doing for soliciting people. And I kept saying, it's not me, guys. So... Finally, I restarted 2.0, and I, it, I've i not been good about uh, posting to Instagram like I should. It's it's on every month to-do list. It just never gets to done. So, Hey, I hear that. Well, you do such a good job on your YouTube. It's, uh, it is, you know, just talking about that, though. Like, I, I know a guy, a professional angler, who basically built up an Instagram page for, like, six or seven years. He had, you know, 75,000 followers, and I think he actually just forgot his password. But he wasn't oh. able to recover his password, and he lost his account. He had to start from scratch after. That's such a big deal after you've built up that kind of following. I feel so bad for him. Well, and, you know, for your listeners, guys, um, let me just tell you, make when they say make a for real password, you know, don't name it your kid in the date of birth, make a for real password. My password now is about 10 characters long. So Wow. It, 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 it's, I'm, I'm really serious about my online security now. Or try to be anyway. That's no joke, man. To to know what kind of information of ours is out there, 
you know, just floating around is, is really scary. You know, I had a little identity yep. scare last year and, uh, dude, it's, it's a nightmare. Yep. Yep. Big time. Right on. Well, Hey, uh, so a, a lot of our listeners are familiar with your page and familiar with your fishing, but, um, real quick, before we dive into everything, could you just give a little bit of background on, uh, your fishing history and, uh, and, and you know, uh, who you are, uh, over there? Absolutely. So I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, a buddy of mine and I fished. Uh, I, I lied to the Mr. Bass of Arkansas circuit and told him I was 16 in 1978 when I was only 15 so I could fish a tournament. And my that morning with a uh, with an old ugly stick and an Ambassador 5500, I caught a 7-8 on a buzz bait. And my, my boater said... Basically, when he boat, when he netted it and put it in the boat, he said, "Congratulations, you just won big bass." And to this day, I remember walking up that hill with that seven pounder in a bag and all the looks, and I was hooked. So I've, I, my parents were smart enough not to let me take my boat to college back then. There was no college fishing at the University of Arkansas. But uh, as soon as I moved to Texas, I joined a bass club and I fished. Uh, I fished everything. I fished some Bassmaster Invitationals years ago. I fished uh, everything on the FLW side up to what's now the Toyota Series. And, um, and I've got a I've got a regular job as well, so I've never chased the national circuits. And I, I figured out pretty early on that's a hard way to make a living. You guys, that that's tough, man. I just think you're smarter than us, man. You, you seem to be doing it the right way. You've fished so many tournaments, and uh, you know you've made a good living. Uh outside of it man you're, you're you're being able to do it all that's that's cool well you know there's a funny story i was actually um i was fishing an invitational many many years ago in missouri and back then it was a draw and i was fishing with john hibden and this was if i remember right after guido had won uh angler of the year and maybe a classic and dion was a rising star and had chevrolet and ranger and i think evan rude and, you know, when you're in the boat, you guys are both aware of this, for eight hours with somebody, you talk about everything. And Dion was sharing with me what a struggle it was to pay his bills and how, you know, how he was thinking he might have to get a real job. And I remember thinking, this guy's got everything working for him. And, oh, by the way, he's also a better fisherman than me. I need to go <laughs> back to Dallas, Texas and figure out how to sell some insurance. So that was really the decision point for me to say, okay, I, you know, Maybe I'm not going to try to be a professional fisherman, and I think it's probably a lot easier now. A lot more competition, but more avenues to do that. But back then, it was Bassmaster, and everybody was fighting over it. It's a really good point. I mean, I, Rob kind of went through that himself, man. He, uh, you know, was he was fishing the Invitationals out west, and um, you know, yeah, it just seems like you're totally right about there being more competition now. But yeah, there, <laughs> there's just there's a lot more available to the fishermen. So. Uh, I think it probably is a lot easier than it than it was, you know, uh, even 15 years ago. You agree, well, Rob? But, but you, yeah, definitely. I totally agree. Um, but you know, nowadays you obviously have to be pretty savvy with uh, social media, and I mean, there's a ton more avenues, but it's still a very difficult job. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and and you know, the, the skill level is through the roof these days. For, for high school and college guys, but you know, I'm sure you got guys get the same questions I do. And you're exactly what I tell people is you, no matter how good a fisherman you are, you got to be able to sell product. 
and it's whether it's product over the internet or product in person or wherever it is, that's job one, and that's what sponsors are looking for. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so uh, flash forward to now, you've got this YouTube page. Um, how long have you? Well, how long ago did you start this? And um, you know, we'll talk about the different types of videos you've been doing. But like, you know, what what made you want to jump into YouTube so uh, so all in so heavily? You know, so what happened was um, I had posted years before anybody really thought about posting to YouTube. I had posted a couple of fishing knot videos, you know, how to tie knots. And I was fishing a BFL tournament at Gibson where I had never been before. I got really lucky and finished third. And I was idling out of a pocket that I had just fished into where it was 15 feet deep. And I was now on the deeper side of that pocket. And as I took off, I hit something and tore the bottom out of my boat and kind of spun around and looked and I could see there was a rock wall under the water. And I got back to the way in. You guys probably know Chris Jones who won the invitational on uh, Muskogee this year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, going to, going to, going to So Chris and I have become buddies and we're just becoming buddies back then. And I said, man, I, I hit some, I hit a rock wall today. And he said, Oh yeah, you were in such and such a cove. And I said, yes. He goes, why did you hit it? And I said, well, what do you mean, why did I hit it? I said, I didn't know it was there. He goes, everybody knows it's there. And I said, it's not on a map. I'm from Texas, bro. And I, yeah, and it's, it was not on a map. And I started thinking about how often I see guys at Rayburn running through the Black Forest or running through the Amber Forest or running through the canyons. So I came home and did a series of navigational videos on Rayburn. Brilliant. And that's what, yeah, that's what really took off is just me breaking the lake down on about 10 videos saying, run here, don't run here. And as it gained popularity, I just started kind of posting really be three years ago in January. I started posting fishing updates on Rayburn. And then I've just kind of let my curiosity lead me. Come to find out if you have a microphone and a camera, people will tell you stuff if you ask them questions. And I'm just innately curious about bass fishing and tournament fishing and boats and that's what's sort of led me where i am now dude i'll tell you your page out of any page out there and you're describing it right now but you answer the you investigate and answer to the questions that serious fishermen want to know you know and that's uh it's different from a lot of different pages and stuff out there because yeah i mean you're talking about it now that's the reason you you did the the rayburn videos where you, people want want to learn how to navigate through that people want to learn how to tie knots people uh want to know what bass do so that's that is really interesting man the amount of quality information is uh is through the roof you know one of the biggest compliments anybody's paid me is i did a so I, I i do a little bit of writing i used to do a lot of writing for uh gary yamamoto's inside line magazine and i was interviewing jay yellis and when we got through we you know did it over the phone and then i i wrote it up but he said you know he said most of the time when i get interviewed it's people who know a lot about writing and a little bit about fishing and he said you know a lot of about fishing and a little bit about writing and he said so you ask the questions that i would ask and huh. that was a big compliment to me then and granted i you know i think i got a c in writing at university of arkansas but i fished my <laughs> whole life so that's cool. i want to know i want to know the why same thing you guys want to know i love it man um yeah so that, if you 
if you can, if you wrote for uh, Inside Line, you must know Ben Matsubu then in that area. I do. Yeah, Ben's a good yeah, buddy of mine. Ben is a deep water hammer. He's a stud, isn't he? He really is. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He lives over on Toledo, but um, you know, it, it, Rayburn's really funny. Rayburn's become a lake of specialists. So uh, January, February. You know, over here, it's going to be Ben and whoever Ben fishes with or Danny Isles and Brian Shook or Phil Marks. I mean, there's a handful of guys that are just almost impossible to beat that time of year. Of course, then it yep. shifts when we get to the spawn. But Ben's definitely one of those deep guys, winter guys. He's And, and good in the summer, too. We just don't have as many summer tournaments. Yep, yep. Yeah, he was the same way out here in Arizona. He was just... Uh, a uh, deep jig bite or deep Carolina rig bite. That guy was, I mean, he was always on it. So, and probably one of the most skilled anglers that's not fishing at a professional level, you know? So I would, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's, uh, we've, we've talked about the telemetry study that Todd did with the, uh, Texas parks and wildlife. And, uh, we talked about your videos. There's, there's five total videos, uh, right, Ken? There's, there's a couple of prior where we're talking about what they're going to do, but yeah, the, the basically the five-month update, so they're five months into that study, actually six now, uh, there's five videos where we sat down and kind of went through what he's observed so far. Okay. Um, and, and then also there, there's another study going on, the same study is going on on Lake Fork as well, but I've not had a chance to sit down with that biologist yet. Oh, so it's a totally different deal. Todd's not a part of that one. Well, they are in the in, in the sense that they talk, but no, Todd's not doing the observations at Fork uh, that they're doing over on Toledo. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how they compare. And um, you know, so our last two episodes, we've talked about this uh, good, and it's drawn a lot of interest. Um, but and we'll talk about it today with you, and we'll put it to bed until uh, your next set of uh, videos comes out on it down the road. For, uh, but. Um, for the listeners, can you just break down? Because they've heard they've heard us talk about this for for two episodes now. But can you break down what Toledo Bend is like as a lake, um, just so they can kind of understand a little bit better, you know, maybe why the fish did what they did, and um, you know how it might differ in a lake they fish, or maybe be the same. Can you just talk about what Toledo Bend is and, and what it's like? Absolutely. So Toledo is a massive impoundment. I'm gonna I think it's 130,000 acres, 60 70 miles long. Um, the, historically the north end of the lake was a little more off color with no grass and the south end of the lake was, was pretty clear with grass. But in 2015, we had significantly high water and it's basically killed off all the grass. It's just starting to grow back in a few places. And, um, the study, what they did was they picked housing bait, which is, um, seven or eight mile deep kind of creek if you will on the south end of the lake uh probably at its widest point two and a half miles across and they uh they originally went over there last fall and caught a few fish um put transmitters in them and then had a hundred percent die off of those fish and it's interesting everybody including the biologist always assumed that fish are most stressed when the water is getting warmer, right? When, you know, post, uh, post spawn kind of situation. 
and they really thought that with water getting cooler, it would not be stressful for the fish. But what they discovered was, what they believe is now, um, hold on a second, guys, sorry. No problem, take your time, man. Okay, toddler at the front, at the door, banging something on it. Um, what they discovered was, um, I heard somebody laugh there. I get a feeling one of y'all has a toddler. Oh, Josh yeah. does. Cool. <laughs> I know all about it, man. All about it. Well, he's doing it again. Let me see if I can get hey, his mom to corral him. So don't worry about it, man, but it's it's all good. Yeah. Uh, so what they discovered was the cooling water was equally stressful on the fish. And uh, that's what they determined. The, the fish basically, and I think I heard you guys describe it in an episode, they developed a... Uh, it wasn't a bacteria, but a fungus, if you will, around the incision site, and it it killed all the fish. Now, I don't know if you guys heard where they found one of the transmitters, but they found one of the transmitters in an eagle's nest. No We kidding. didn't talk about that. That's cool. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, so they're they're tracking the fish. They've got about half those fish are deep caught fish, and half the, I mean deep water, not deep in the throat. And half those fish are shallow fish. Unfortunately, there's no grass. But as Todd said, it's probably better this year. There's no grass because it's easier to track those fish huh. uh, than you know them getting buried up in a grass bed. But uh, it's a real fascinating study. Um, I know you guys have talked about it quite a bit. But really, what they're trying to determine is uh, what impact does kind of boat noise have on those fish? Does it move them around? And then, of course, obviously, seasonal patterns are where those fish go and how they react to baits so housing has got to be the most pressured creek on that lake and that lake has got to be even for its size one of the most pressured lakes in the whole country like it's it's almost laughable certain weekends certain times a year um do you think those fish are just a little different than than your typical reservoir or do you, you know uh, are, are you thinking maybe these fish are, these fish are just fish and, and they kind of have some of the same tendencies everywhere i i so first off toledo was one of the most pressured lakes but toledo's fishing has declined pretty significantly in the last couple of years so unfortunately that's pulling a lot of that pressure to rayburn Okay, so is it less really than it than it was a few years ago? Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, it was named best bass lake in the country two years in a row, and we were catching giants over there. And I mean, thirty, you know, thirty, thirty-five pound stringers. But uh, if you go, if you went over there today, there would be half as on a Tuesday, there would be half as many boats or less in any given parking lot than it would be here at Rayburn today. So, and, and part of that also is Toledo is also scary to run around on. So Toledo is completely timbered. So you run boat lanes or stuff that you just think you can get away with running. So, you know, you don't get like, the recreational traffic on Toledo that you get over here. But to, to answer your question, I, I think it's, I think those, I think what they discover there, and I think Fork will prove it up. Of course, Fork's not much less pressured. But I think we're going to discover how these fish act, whether we're there or not, if you will, other than the boat noise spooking them on occasion. Makes sense. Right on. Um, very interesting that it's kind of tapered off a little bit. So maybe my expect or my view of this uh, changes a little bit. Um, so so you're talking about idling over the fish. And, and like I had this 
I don't want to call it a dumb rule, but I guess a silly rule in my head forever where I, and I've, I've shared this with a million people who ask, you know, uh, over the years. And I always thought, man, if you're in 16, 18 feet or deeper, you're usually clear to idle over fish because I would, I would see a lot of fish under the boat at that depth and you get shallower and you just don't see them anymore. You see them off to the side, but, um, does this change the way you view, uh, idling over fish and looking for schools? You know, what was your, how did you do it before and how do you plan on doing it moving forward after talking to Todd? So I, I was always very colored about this. So let me take you back to the mid nineties. There was a guy here in Texas named John Hope who wrote a book called tracking Texas trophies. And uh, as I recall, John was the first person in Texas that had park and wildlife's permission to put transmitters in fish. And at the height of it, he was only tracking six or seven fish. But one of the fish he was tracking was a 16-pounder that Dennis Canada caught on fork. At the time, it was the sixth biggest fish ever caught in Texas. And they tracked that fish for a couple of years. And long story short, I got the opportunity to be in the boat with him one day when he tracked that fish. And her name was Missy. And Missy lived in a giant cedar tree. I'm talking about a cedar tree. 50 feet around and stuck 20 feet out of the water, but it was the biggest one, huh? It was in 12 feet of water and get this. It was at the intersection of two boat lanes in Wolf Creek, extremely highly pressured area. And it went by that area. You flip in that bush, but nobody ever caught Missy. Matter of fact, Dennis caught her off the nest with a minna. He saw her, they fished for her, couldn't catch her. He had a guide trip. They went and got minnas and came back and caught her. It's the only way they caught her. <laughs> Live bait, of and course. So I got in the boat with John, and back then, it was a flasher on the front deck. And he said, I, we were talking, and I had a camp at Fork at the time. He said, I'm going to show you why you'll never catch it. He said, you're a tournament anchor. And I said, yes, I am. And he goes, I'm going to show you why you don't catch a giant fish. So we got about 150 yards upwind from her. And he said, don't move, just, we're going to just float by her. And we floated by her. And with the antenna, he showed me, she stayed in that bush and we went, I could have pitched underhanded to that cedar tree and where she was, we floated by her another 150 yards. We cranked up and we did a big semicircle and did the drift again. And he said, now watch this trolling motors up out of the water. We got about a long cast away from her. And he turned the flasher on, on the front deck and she swam out of that bush. How about that? Whoa, 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 what just happened? And he said, he said, what, what, what makes a sound or what makes a depth finder tell depth? And I said, well, you know, it's a sound wave. And he said, so my experience has been that these fish have this brain, the size of a pea. He said, and until they're about seven or eight pounds, they all act like a deer. I don't know if you guys hunt or not. But Rob, said, yep, go ahead. So, so Rob, you know, if you put a, uh, well, we used to, so I used to cut timber in college. We would come into the set the next morning after we left it overnight, and there would be deer tracks all in the set because those deer are innately curious about what the heck you're doing in there, right? Yep. You put you put something in the woods. And a doe or a small buck is super curious about what's going on, and they'll come check it out. He said, bass are like that until they're about seven pounds. He said, but once they get about seven pounds, they become a tom turkey. He goes, if there's something in the woods that doesn't look right, a tom doesn't investigate. He just leaves. He's gone. And he's, I could have 
a box lid. I could have touched the trolling motor. Any sound that that giant fish would have recognized as not being natural, she leaves that bush. So they caught her twice to replace the battery in her. And both times they knew where she rested and they knew where she fed and they would go tie up or anchor up and wait on her to come into the feeding area. And that's how they caught her. So I was always colored by that experience. I mean, to this day, if I'm flipping, you know, bushes, I turn my electronics off. I don't need to know how deep it is. Uh, So I've always been very, very skeptical of, of the ability to idle directly over the top of a fish and, and, and those fish not to stay there. And that was, you know, I, I, when I posted that originally on my YouTube channel, I got a ton of guys said, Oh, I caught a nine pounder in a brush pile. I've just idled over. And I, I agree with that. But as Todd said, a third of them are demonstrating that they're going to leave when you idle over them. So they don't all leave, but a bunch of them do. Yeah, yeah, nothing's going to be perfect, but that makes total sense. You're just you're just fishing for less fish that that didn't care. And what what I thought was really interesting also, Ken, was uh, that like the depth with the depth not really mattering, um, it makes you wonder like you know if you side scan from fifty feet out, are you scaring just as many fish? Also, like I mean, is the side scan from fifty feet away the same as idling right over their head? Like, did you get any any idea from Todd on that? Todd believes yes. And, it's different. And he talks about it. Yeah. Well, no, he believes that same thing. You're hitting okay. them with a sound wave and the most wary fish, which would it would make sense that the most wary fish or the biggest fish are going to leave. Now, we've all caught, I mean, I caught a 10-pounder over here this spring that I was looking at on a 360 imaging. I saw her on a root ball. I pitched to her and caught her. So it's, it's not a every time. That's what's so frustrating about bass fishing, right? But a bunch of the time, Todd believes that he side-scanned fish, and, and then he goes back to fish for those fish, and those fish have left. And, and I think he believes it's because he pinged them, if you will. Yeah, and that makes total sense. Like, And, and we're definitely not telling the listeners to not idle around because that's how you find fish. Like, Even if you've got a school of 100 bass and 30 of them leave, you're going to see 70 of them, and you're going to say, hey, there's a huge school right there. And now you know where that school's at. You wouldn't have found it without idling. So you, you need to still use your electronics just just as much. But but when it's tournament day or when you're out there and it's time to catch them, and you don't need to idle over this spot. I mean, you're gonna if you pull up to it nice and slow and you fish around for five minutes, you're gonna know whether they're there or not. Um, so yeah. So I, I guess you know the biggest thing is just cut that unnecessary idling out, right? Yep. Ken, from this. Um, from from this study, is there anything that's blaring to you that has helped you catch more fish? Well, unfortunately, I haven't got to fish much since I did this review, but okay. um, since I sat down with Todd, um, I'm trying to think, is there anything that's really had that big an impact on me? Probably only reinforcing that original belief that if I can, to, to be as super quiet as possible. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing that did have an impact, and, and you guys probably both know Dickie Newberry, who's uh, on the mm-hmm. FLW tour now, but has been my team partner for years and years. Dickie was always a believer that if you release a fish back into a school, that it, it will spook the rest of those fish. And and my conversation with Todd, although he can't 
provide data to prove that. He believes it too. And so that's, you know, if I'm out funny fishing, there, there's probably going to be an occasion where I might put a fish in the live well for 20 minutes while I'm catching those fish just to keep from spooking those fish. I agree with that 100% also. Yeah, or, if you're, there's a, or if you're fishing heavy cover and you hang a fish up and break him off, a lot of times done. it'll shut that school off. You're absolutely done. I On Bob Sandlin years and years ago, I pulled a, about a four-pounder off a school of fish that I had found in practice of where a drain dumped off into the lake. And when that fish came by the boat, there were about five other same size fish with it. And I thought I'm going to whack them. And that fish came off and I never got another bite there. Now, part of that may have been because I pulled those fish off of that spot. But, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's, there's actually a study done years and years ago by a biologist where he proved that bait fish do give off a chemical, if you will, when they're, uh, when they're, they, they sense danger, you've got to think bass do the same thing. I mean, deer do the same thing, right? Yep. It's like salt in the wound. You lose the fish and you shut the school of fish off. That's a, a double whammy, man. Yeah. And, and again, we've all had the occasion, Rob, where you lose a fish in a brush pile and you pitch back in there and you catch a fish or you catch the same fish. Same one. Yeah. So it's not yeah. every time, which is so crazy frustrating. You know, one other thing I should mention that John told me from their observations, and John tracked fish for a long time. Actually, two other interesting notes. Um, he said they found they could get closer to those big fish with the trolling motor on steady speed versus on off, on off, which I thought was interesting. That's very and interesting. They also, yeah, they all, which makes sense, right? It, approaching sound opposed to. But they also tracked a fish, a smallmouth in Lake Whitney that uh, Alton Jones caught, like a three pounder, maybe a four pounder. And where most bass have a pretty small home range, John said they would see that smallmouth move two to three miles in a given day. That's crazy. And I, I heard you guys talk about on one of your shows whether it made, you know, whether it was, would, uh, smallmouth would be the, do the same thing and and his now again it was you know on one lake in texas on one fish but his experience was smallmouth are very i believe the word's pelagic they just they're going to follow the bait fish 100 percent, a lot more than a bass will yeah i agree with that completely that's very interesting though it swam that much i mean uh i told the story about keith combs with that fish that had literally swam tens of miles over the course of, uh, you know, just one season. And, um, I, you know, it makes sense. And how many times have we all been on smallmouth where they just completely disappear from, from where you were fishing and, and, and vice versa, they com- will completely show up in an area too. So they'll make you pull your hair out and you love them when you're on them. Cause they're so much fun, but they uh, are not to be counted on for sure. Yeah. Uh, well dude, that's, that's some awesome insight. Ken. uh, we appreciate you posting those videos in the first place. Uh, appreciate all the hard work everyone put in and tracking those fish, but um, thanks for coming on and giving, giving us your thoughts on it also. Um, Absolutely. Before we, yeah. Before we let you roll, uh, what, you know, what are some of the other things you're doing on your page? Your boat reviews have become very popular. Can you tell us about those a little bit? Yeah. So uh, not to pick on fellow YouTubers, but you know, the, the typical YouTube video is here's my new boat and it's the coolest boat ever. And, um, I, 
I was thinking I wanted to boat shop this year. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm a boater. So I don't get in. I mean, I've basically been in three boats in the last couple of years, my boat and the two boats of the guys that I tournament fish with. And everybody in a basket, so the basket riding boat in the world, and everybody in a, in a Phoenix say it's the best riding boat in the world. And everybody in a Nitro says it's the best riding boat in the world. And I thought, you know, I'm going to shop for boats. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm in a unique position that I have a lot of buddies who have a lot of different boats. And I think I've proven over the years I don't destroy much. So I've actually convinced a couple of dealers to let me borrow boats, too. Nice. And I, I've just started doing boat reviews. I think I've done eight boats. Matter of fact, I'll drop the Phoenix PHX boat um, this morning at some point when I'm done editing it. And, and uh, Josh, you, you're in a nitro, right? Yeah, and hey, if you give it a high marks, man, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll pump it out. But he better give it a high marks. <laughs> well, the the miss, I can't get one. So my buddy Clayton Bulware here at Rayburn's been waiting on his 2021 for weeks now. So as soon as that boat's in, we're going to do the nitro. I'm really curious to check out that boat. Cool. And I'm just breaking them down in in kind of five parts. You know, fishability, fit and finish. You know, all the other stuff. Actually, six parts. I include contingency program on there as well. And, you know, score them one to 100. And it's been a real eye opener to me uh, as to things in other boats that, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. And um, one of the boats that I looked at, so my boat has finished carpet in both of the starboard rod boxes. And one of the boats I looked at, it's finished fiberglass with sea deck flooring. And I'm like, I don't need carpet in that box. It gets wet. It stays wet. It mildews. I want, I want that, right? I want finished hmm. fiberglass with a sea deck floor. And I've just seen that over and over in different boats of stuff that, um, man, you, well, Josh, do you have the vents on your, uh, cover of your boat? Yes. Uh, it actually does. Yep. Those are cool. I'd never seen those before. So, you know, there are people, there are different boat manufacturers doing different things. And I'll tell you a really funny story. Um, I love on my Ranger, which I think the has it too. You can get a parking brake trailer, right? That I'm not sure of. I know the Rangers have it. Uh, I don't have it on my boat and it may be an option, but um, you really like that, huh? I love it because I get in the parking lot and I don't have to go steal a rock somewhere to chalk my, <laughs> That's my boat. That's actually very handy. That makes complete <laughs> oh, sense. We've, we've all done it, right? Who hasn't taken a rock from around the sign in their landscaping at a, at a hotel parking lot? Oh, yeah. All the time. And yep. I complained about it on the Blazer boat, and a week later, Blazer reached out and said, by the way, you can now get a parking brake on our boat. So I'm, I'm thinking some of the manufacturers are paying attention. Matter of fact, I know they are because a couple of them have reached out. And, um, I had a, had a big compliment paid to me by one of the, uh, one of the owners of a boat company the other day that, uh, you know, although he didn't necessarily love how I scored his boat, he felt like it was an honest opinion and, and, uh, you know, they're paying attention. So it, it's cool. It's, it's really fun to go through them and see what one boat does better than another. I have it. What I have discovered so far is, and, and I'm looking at 21 foot boats, most of them ride pretty dang good. Uh, right on. And that goes separation. back to so many folks say it's it's more driver than boat. I mean, and I'm sure there are some differences, but um, I guess some I guess they're right when they say that. Well, to that point, so I I took the Vexus out, and I saw something I didn't that made me uncomfortable 
in the ride of the didn't because I only got an hour in that boat. So I'm going over to fish with Steven Johnson on Toledo Bend somewhere in the next few weeks who has hundreds of hours in that boat because you're right. I didn't know how to drive that boat. I want to go out with a guy who knows how to drive that boat because you're 100% correct. The, it, it's more often the, the Indian than it is the arrow. The guy who knows how to drive a boat can make a really good boat ride terrible or a really bad boat ride good just based on their skill behind the wheel. Huh. Makes sense. Yeah. That's cool. Well, yeah, they're, they're really, really intricate videos. I'm, I'm stoked to see, uh, yeah, what you have to say about the nitro and, um, shoot, man. Uh, last thing for you. Um, we, you know, we get a lot of listeners and I just get a lot of people in general that want to go on maybe a fishing road trip, you know, uh, folks that live out West, they hear about the great fishing in Texas. And, and you're talking about how hammered Rayburn's getting right now. Is there another lake in Texas that is a little bit underrated, maybe just a, just a phenomenal fishery that not everyone's fishing right now. Um, it won't blow up if you mention it on this podcast, you know, but what, where, where's someone that we can, uh, where's somewhere we can yeah. send some people to go catch big fish in Texas other than Rayburn? Yeah. So right now there's two, uh, Choke Canyon has been silly good. Um, Choke Canyon is just outside of San Antonio. It's, if you want to go flip deep grass, uh, matter of fact, I talked to Steven and he said they were getting 30 and 40 bites a day, which is, you know, just so much fun. Oh, and yeah. you know the other one would be uh, uh, so we had Bass Champs Championship on Falcon Year several years ago, and we caught the first day our best five weight. It's the second day, thirty. He left the left. Dicky looked at me. Now remember, we had ten fish for sixty-one pounds. He said, "Do you think we got a check?" <laughs> That's insane. And I said, "I said, I said, no. I think we just barely missed it." And an wow. hour later, we got a text message. We got the last place check with 10 fish that weighed 61 Good pounds. My it took 95 that. pounds to win that tournament. So it's it's had a major downturn, and uh, you're saying that it's it's on its way back up? Yeah, so uh, I'm sure you guys know Matt Reed, who guides down there. Yeah, this is not a, Matt Reed adver- not, not a Matt Reed advertisement, but I talked to Matt on occasion. And, and I'm probably going to get these numbers not exactly right, but I believe he said in the heyday, he averaged a 10 pounder every three days in his boat. And he told me earlier this year that it was back up to about every 10 or 11 days, which is a pretty good odds for catching a 10 pounder. Yeah. No kidding. I don't think it's, I don't think it's as many fish, but you're still going to get your bait taken away from you down there in a day. Something's you're going to hook something that you can't handle. I wonder if, uh, you know, the resurgence of both of those lakes is a little bit due to, you know, actually getting some water over the last few years you know there's been a lot more rain you know out here for sure but i know that part of texas has got it also uh i wonder if the water levels up and you're just healthier and it's just a good cycle. absolutely a matter of fact part of rayburn struggles right now is it's four and a half feet low so where we should be on a great rattle trap uh slash a rig bite the deepest grass is about six or seven feet. So it's just, there's just no deep grass right now to catch those fish out of. Whereas both of those lakes, now Falcon's not a grass lake, but Choke Canyon and Falcon both, having water back in those lakes makes all the difference in the world. That's cool. It makes complete sense. So there you go. And that's for, for our Western listeners, that's a lot closer than uh, East Texas. You know, both of those lakes yeah. are, you know, going to save you eight hours of driving from going to Toledo or Rayburn. So that's cool, right. man. 
Well, and e- even over here, I mean, you could fly into Houston and you'll be at Rayburn in two hours. And, you know, there's a number of good guides over here. I don't guide, but there's a number of good ones over here that you could just drive over and show up and, and have a lot of fun over here. That'd be or the way to do it. That's it's it, they are tough. They're such big lakes, and like you said, there is the treachery of navigating without really knowing how to do it. So if if you've only got a couple days, you know, I mean, it's gonna take you a couple days to figure out how to get from point A to point B. Uh, you know, if it's your first time in your boat, so that would be a good one to go with a guide. Yep, no doubt. Awesome. Well, hey, Rob, do you have anything else uh, for Ken before we let him roll? I can't think of anything other than uh, thanks for coming on and good luck in your upcoming tournaments. Yeah, thanks, man. man. Do you can and uh, any anything else uh, that you want to um, you know tell the listeners before we uh, roll and hopefully have you on again? Well, no, I'm I'm really have just discovered y'all's podcast, so I've I've really enjoyed. I've listened to several now, and uh, I'll I'll be a regular listener. I enjoy it, guys. Well, cool. thanks, Thank man. You. Same with your page, and uh, make sure y'all follow uh, Ken Smith Fishing on uh, Instagram. I'm sorry, y'all, yeah, Instagram, but uh, more more importantly, YouTube and. Um, <laughs> We will uh, talk to you soon, Ken. Thank you very much, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for listening to the show, guys. We really appreciate you all sharing the show with your friends and rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. We hope you all have a great week, and we will talk to you next week.